We're turning to 2 Thessalonians again and to chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, page 990, if you have a church Bible. Let's read God's Word together. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, just as it was with you, and pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith, but the Lord is faithful, and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we did not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, Write this greeting in my own hand. This is the real me, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we remember that these were real words written by the real Apostle Paul inspired by your Spirit and read in the first instance by this real gathering of believers in Thessalonica. We want to enter into their dialogue and their thinking so that these words may become your real words to us in our church fellowship. That inspired by the same Holy Spirit, you would bring them to change our minds and hearts and way of life, just as you did then. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. While we've been seeing in 
Second Thessalonians, as you see in First Thessalonians, that these believers were in a good place generally, and again and again, Paul is telling them to do what they are doing more and more. Keep going, keep persevering. You don't need to radically change anything, you just need to persistently, patiently keep doing what you are doing to be faithful Christian believers. And sometimes that is a liberating message to hear. We don't need to generate constant new things for our Christian lives, but we do need to, in dependence on God, just keep doing the same things. And the same things are so often the simple things, trusting, praying, faithfully serving the Lord Jesus Christ until He comes again or until He calls us home. Just keep doing the next right thing. That is, in one sense, the Christian life, as, as simple as that. By God's grace, just keep doing the next right thing. And in a sense, that was very much the tone of these two letters to this church. But threatening that normal Christian living was a kind of new tendency to think as we've seen that the Lord Jesus had already indeed come back, and therefore they could just put their feet up and take it easy and give up on the spiritual battle and give up on the praying because the Lord has come back. So everything's fine. We don't need to bother about doggedly keeping going in the same direction anymore. That was the threat to their Christian fellowship. It's easy to imagine in our own culture, isn't it, a, a, an entire church becoming, not because they think the Lord Jesus has already come back, that's unlikely, but they might just think that, well, if He ever comes back, we'll face that then and think about that then. Or, I don't think He will come back. I think that bodily resurrection, bodily second coming of the Lord Jesus, that was written to kind of make a point, but it's not literally what's going to happen. That's your kind of 1940s, 50s liberalism that swept through the church for some 70, 80 years. More likely, I think, for us that we think, well, out of mind, out of sight, everything's fine. Rather than living with the return, the imminent definite, promised return of the Lord Jesus in blazing fire and glory in all His holiness right before our eyes day by day by day. And when the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is in some way neutralized in its importance by our thinking, then all sorts of things begin to wobble around and go wrong in our minds, in our fellowships, in our priorities, in our relationships. That's what Paul is saying. There are three different words for the arrival of the king used in this letter. They're all in chapters 1 or 2, but we have the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of the Lord in all His glory apocalypse, if you like. 
is the, is the word, the nearest English word we have to that. And then that's chapter 1. In chapter 2, we have what's known as the parousia. It's the coming of the Lord, the aspect of the coming of the Lord that is the destruction of all evil. So you have the revelation of Christ and the destruction of evil. And then we have also in chapter 2 the manifestation of the splendor of his coming. Three different things all combining to form this return of Jesus Christ. It couldn't be described in bigger, bolder language. It couldn't be more um, arresting in its impact if we think of it and wait for it. It could hardly be more devastating as we see all that has been created melt like wax before his glory and every human soul who has ever lived rise up to be judged by Jesus Christ. The scale is so enormous, the separation of good and evil so final, the homecoming of all God's people so beautiful and glorious. We might think, how could Christians ever live a single day with such a vast and significant event just around the corner, maybe? How could we live a single day without remembering it? Ah, but we can, can't we? We can live a week, a month. A whole church can live for six months and scarcely think of it at all. And that is what this letter is saying. Don't do that, but rather keep walking step by step. We must remember, of course, that these believers were living just 20, 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He had said to the disciples as he rose from the earth, I will come back to you. I mean, they are really waiting but Paul discerns that there is the beginnings of Christian living which is no longer really waiting for his return. And when we're no longer really waiting for his return, we're only, we're only united in him. If we're not waiting for his return, then we will surely start to spread out into all sorts of factions and start to lose the plot and prioritize the wrong things. That's what was happening. That's what Paul was concerned about. And so in this last chapter, he wants to very practically bring them back together as a body of believers. And he does that, first of all, by speaking of, of the way in which he and they are bound together in prayer. This is a beautiful thing, as Paul, the great apostle, the evangelist, the one who'd brought the message to them, pleads with them in verses 1 to 5 that they would pray for him and for the message of the Lord to spread rapidly. Notice the we and you language. Pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. Their relationship is very much 
although separated geographically, one which is seeing that they are bound together in prayer. And that's something which Christians waiting for the return of Jesus are very conscious of, the need to pray for the spreading of the message, the protection of our brothers and sisters from the evil one. As the kingdom grows, the devil and all his agents are furiously, constantly, deviously and deceitfully trying to prevent that happening. And Paul says, pray, pray for the message, deliverance from the wicked and evil. We have confidence in the Lord that you will continue in this way. It's one of the marks of health, life, vibrancy in a church when people are very conscious of being bound in prayer for the spread of the message, for the deliverance of evil. It's a beautiful thing. It carries us forwards through the thick and the thin of life in this fallen world. Focus on the return of Christ and all it means, and almost inevitably, our prayer lives will be enriched, united, focused on the right things. I think we very often think, how can we enrich our prayer lives by wondering how we can enrich our prayer lives? But actually, that's the wrong way around. Focus on Christ and His return, and your prayer life will be enriched and united with each other. That's the first thing. The next thing, bound together in work, ordinary, everyday, normal, daily existence, the, the daily toil of the pattern of our lives, the work that we do. I don't just mean paid employment, although for many of us that is largely the work that we do, but the work that we do, the structure and purpose of our lives, the, the daily disciplines, the responsibilities that God has given us relationally, the things that we should be doing for ourselves, our loved ones, and others, the things that we just have to get on with. Now, work is as old as creation, isn't it? But it is also cursed. And how often, when the alarm bell goes on Monday morning, work is the very last thing uh, we feel like doing. And yet, and yet, there is health and goodness and God-given structure and fulfillment that comes through work. It's lovely how Paul puts it all back on himself and says to them, remember how I lived with you? I worked night and day, his tent making, I guess, is what he was doing, so that he was quite deliberately not a burden on those people, so that nobody could accuse him of just being at it, in it for the money, coasting. Because if you're going to deliver a message as penetrating as strong in its claims upon human lives, then you just don't want anyone to be able to say, oh, he's only in it for the money. Look at how he's being looked after. That's a very important principle, but it's wider than just the apostle or a minister's work. It's, 
It's a modeling, he says. It's, it's not just the principle of not being a burden unnecessarily, but there is a modeling. We did this not because we do not, verse 9, have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you. My instinct is that most of us pick up a work ethic from somewhere, most likely our parents or our environment at school or our formative relationships of some kind. Most of us kind of grow into a pattern of work, more healthy or less healthy, depending on what's been modeled to us. And in one sense, as Christians, we have a responsibility to think about our work ethic, not just because it's the one we've picked up, but what is our work ethic like in relation to what God says? And maybe that what God says is in line with what our work ethic is. But it's worth thinking that through and being very aware that we may have drifted into patterns of work or idleness, as Paul is saying some of them are, without actually being aware of it. A good friend of mine was visiting his father who was um, ranting and complaining about all the people coming into our country and stealing all our jobs. And my friend said to his dad, Dad, you've never had a job in your life. <laughs> He's, Nothing's been stolen from you. And that guy had had to look at the work ethic of his dad, non-existent, on the brew, and radically think through as he became a Christian, well, how am I going to live? How am I going to work? And Paul says here that our work, our patterns of work, should be two things. They should be a healthy model for other younger believers. Which means if your work is actually your idol and comes first in your life, that will be an unhealthy model for other believers because we should worship only God. And somebody may pick up their work ethic and be very, very hard working, but for it actually to be a form of idolatry. Or in this case, what Paul is worried about, somebody has picked up a, a work ethic which is just one of laziness and sponging and living off everybody else, entitled a sense of the world owes me a living. And, and he, I think, is being accused of that. I think there are people in the Thessalonian church saying, Paul was just a layabout. All this chat about the coming of the Lord and all that he was saying, Paul is saying to them, you know how you can follow our example. You know how we lived. These letters that have come purporting to be from me, saying that the Lord has already come back, you know that I, I did not live like that. You know, he says to them, that we worked very hard precisely so that we could be a good model toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. 
the biblical wisdom is very carefully balanced because there are times when it is absolutely right that we should get on and do what we have to do and not be a burden to others. And there are people who are a burden to others and they become a drain on emotional and relational health. And there is sometimes the biblical mandate to not be a burden on each other. Do what you should be doing. But there is also a biblical mandate to carry one another's burdens. <laughs> and there are times when the right thing to do is to allow others to carry you. And our human tendency is to get in an awful muddle about which is which. But the biblical balance is actually pretty easy to discern. Somebody, a Christian, says, oh, I couldn't possibly ask for a lift to church. You say, well, why not? There's, you know, 16 people with cars and you don't have one. Why can't you? Oh, I don't want to be a burden. You say, no, don't be silly. We're meant to serve each other. You're not being a burden. What would you do if you had the car and somebody else needed a lift? Oh, I would give them a lift. Well, I mean, work it out. We're so Scottish, British, I don't know what it is. The precise moment when we should allow someone else to help us, we don't want to be a burden. And the, the church family should be a place where that is a bright source of Christian witness that we help each other out in a way that cuts right against the norms of our culture. And somebody at work should be able to say when you said, oh, I had to borrow a friend's car from church because I, you know, my mother was ill and they enabled me to drive up to, you know, Wick and Visitor or whatever it is. And the friend at work thinks, somebody at church lent you their car, man. That's not we should carry one another's burdens. But when it comes to our own normal daily responsibilities, there is health, structure, for our faith to thrive as we carry on doing the things that we should be doing. To work, to earn, to pay for, to feed our families or ourselves, to give, to do what we can do to further the spread of the gospel. And the chances are that that work and structure will go on and on and on and on for many of us until we die. It might not be paid employment until we die, but there will be things that we can and should do for others, for myself, I should be responsible for doing the things for me that God has enabled me to do. And if I constantly put those things on other people, that will cripple them and cripple me. Lack of health relationally in a church family or in your own family can be really badly affected by somebody who just won't pull their weight. 
just won't do the, right, the next right thing. Just won't get on with it. How down to earth the Bible is. It's part of growing up, isn't it? Can you please put the dishes in the dishwasher? I don't want to put the dishwasher, dishes in the dishwasher. I know, well, we all have to do things that we don't want to do, but just do it. So it goes on, age five, six, seven, 12, 18, 22. There's loads of things we don't want to do, but we should just do them. And if we're Christians, we're sorted enough in our heads and hearts before God to recognize that this isn't a big deal. Just, I can just do this. And the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives, the one who will come and take us to the world where work is no longer a curse, is the one who is saying to us, in the meantime, just get on with it. Settle down. I love that verse 12. We command and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. Get on with it. Matches chapter 2, doesn't it? Don't, don't become easily unsettled. And now we have settle down and live a normal, healthy, relationally mature life for the good of others and yourself. Bound together in normal, daily, unexciting, and yet God-honoring work, relationships, doing carrying out the responsibilities that God has given me to do. Not worshiping them. Not avoiding them. Just doing them. And the danger is when people fall off that path, while well, he says, doesn't it, they become a pain in the neck, a busybody. Instead of being busy, they're busybodies. It's not a nice thing to happen. It's not a nice way to think of myself. If I become a busybody, I wouldn't like to think of myself as a busybody. I'd like to think of myself as just getting on with what I have to do, taking responsibility for my responsibilities. And if I'm not absorbed in that, God says, well, your sinful heart will quickly become absorbed in things that actually aren't your responsibility. So, how practical. Put the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in place in your thinking, and suddenly your daily life tomorrow and Monday morning becomes a much easier thing to work out. Do what you have to do for his glory until he comes. Finally, then, verses 14 to the end. Bound together in prayer, in work, in truth bound together in truth. Now, by truth, I mean here not the sense that he uses truth or teaching in verse 6. You know, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, keep away from every brother who is idle, does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. So, we have to live according to the truth. Yeah, that's one area of truth that we're bound together in, what God teaches, the truth of the gospel. But here, as Paul finishes his letter, he's very careful to say, you need to be bound together with me 
in the reality, the truth of the fact that you know that I'm saying this to you and you know what I am like. Paul is saying, as he puts his own hallmark on his letter in verse 17, this is really me. And go by what you know to be true, and what you know to be true is that I wrote this letter. So don't go by what other people tell you. Go by what I tell you. And make sure you realize that what is true is here. It's very much in line with the kind of undermining hearsay that the Second Thessalonians have become dangerously close to. They've received letters that purport to be from Paul. They're being drawn away into conversations that really should never even be happening because it's all being stirred up by he says that they said that he wrote that he wrote. And Paul says, no, look at what I write, and you can know that I write this because here is my writing, and this is how I mark all my letters. This is how I write. And when we are dealing with what we know to be true, that's when the peace of the Lord Jesus reigns. I was with a friend this past week who lives and has lived for 20 years with an almost crippling level of anguish caused by really terrible, clinically terrible OCD. Now, in those 20 years, this friend has gone from graduation to successful employment, got married, they have a child, they have a lovely home, they have come through all the normal, you know, stages of life, if you like, and yet 20 years have been marred by his anguish of this mental health illness, very serious mental health problem. And the root of the anguish is caused by the fact that he's scarcely able to live according to what he knows to be true. So, I've ruined my parents' life. He genuinely believes that to, a, to an agonizing extent, but he, has, he hasn't ruined his parents' life. Now, that, that's an extreme example that I'm painting and the anguish of not being able to plant your feet through life on what you know to be true is very painful. Now, in a much less severe way, Paul is saying to them here, don't go by what they say. Go by what you know. And life will be an awful lot more peaceful and simple. They say, what say they? Well, let them say. I don't know who said that. Somebody famous said that. Who was it? Shakespeare? Burns? I don't know. Have you heard it before? It's good. They say. Well, what say they? 
Or do they indeed? Well, let them say. I'll go by what I know, bound together in truth, as day by day by day we serve the Lord Jesus Christ, who will certainly come again. Do the next right thing. Settle down. Sometimes when you say to people, settle down, the, the opposite happens. But Paul says to these people, settle down and serve the coming Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do recognize that our minds can cause us to be slippery, evasive when it comes to doing things we don't want to do. We look to the wrong people sometimes, Lord, as our role models. We get involved in thoughts, conversations, ideas that aren't helpful rather than just carrying on with what is helpful. So, Lord, help us to hear your word, to rejoice together around this table that has forgiven sinners, bound together in Jesus. You are the one who feeds us and keeps us until the day dawns when we see you face to face. Amen.